please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5 with me. If you uh, turn there, if you get to 2 John, you've gone too far, but not by a lot. And, and not next week, okay? So 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, we're, we're finishing up, Lord willing, 1 John today. They said it couldn't be done. They said I couldn't get through a book of the Bible in a year. February 9th, I think, was when we began. Uh, let me double check that. Yeah, February 9th, last year, was when we began First John. It's not February 9th yet, so we've done it, okay? So we, we got through. In fact, I'm feeling so good about it. I think I can get through two books in a couple months. So we're going to go through Second and Third John. Uh, and uh, now I know they're only one chapter each, but still, I think... I think we can get through those, uh, Lord willing, by uh, mid-April or so. So we're going we're gonna to go into 2nd and 3rd John next. But finish up 1st John this morning as we, we do, unless, unless we turn this into a six-week series, which someone said in a joking way very meanly toward me uh, this week. But we won't. We didn't first service, so I think we'll, we won't do it uh, second service either. 1st John chapter 5, we're going to look at verses uh, twenty. One, we're going to go to verse 21, but I'm going to give you the context here, and we'll read verse 20 as well. If you please stand with me in honor of God, if you're able, uh, as we read uh, these verses together. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, but I'll begin, begin in verse 20. He writes, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is, in, who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you as we think about 1 John here and coming to a close. We pray that our relationship with you would, would have deepened. We pray that we'd be more convinced of the deity, the humanity of your son Jesus, and more convinced of the reality of our relationship with you if we've placed our faith in your son Jesus and his ability to completely remove our sins from us. And we pray that you'd help us to, to do this, this instruction, this last instruction here in First John that we cannot do on our own. We don't have the ability to rid ourselves of idols, and so we pray that you would, in your grace and love, help us to do so. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the verse here is only six words long. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so obviously this morning we're going to be talking about idolatry. But before we begin talking about idolatry, I kind of want to lay some foundational ideas. And, and here's kind of the first premise I want to begin with, the first idea I want to begin with and see if you agree with this. I, I don't think it will be anything controversial for those of you who have been a part of Bethany Community Church for any length of time. But the statement is this, the premise is this. We were designed to love and worship God. That's not too controversial, right? We were designed to love and worship God. That's, that's why we exist. That's what our purpose. Now, that's not a very controversial idea, I hope. And yet, as we believe that idea and apply it in our lives, it totally... Ach- 
changes, affects the trajectory of our life. That orientation saying, okay, I believe that I was designed to love and worship God, so that's what I'm going to pursue. If we say that, it changes so many things about how we live and what we do. Just being off a little bit on that totally changes the trajectory of our life, right? It's like this this game I played when I was a kid, this computer game. It was it had these two tanks. Maybe some of you who are older will remember this game. And, and one tank would be on one hill, and the other tank would be on the other hill. And you could kind of like adjust the little gun turret, the, the barrel of your tank, and then you'd, based upon the wind velocity and the distance and stuff, you'd kind of adjust that barrel. And then once you got it set in the direction you wanted the missile to fire, you'd shoot off the missile. And, and if it was aimed well... There'd be this nice little arc, and the missile would land on the opponent tank, and it'd go, but that's actually more sound effects probably than the game actually had. But if it was aimed poorly, there was always this danger that, like, the missile could ricochet or something, and and then it would, like, hit the ground underneath where your tank was, and it'd blow up the ground, and then all of a sudden your tank would go, and then it'd it'd blow up and not, not go very well. Just being off a little bit in the trajectory changed the the entire course of the game. Now, as we think about our purpose in life, it's so easy just to to get off a little bit on on the purpose or or to kind of express things that kind of sound right, but then as you think about how they sound biblically, you recognize that that's off. So, for example, Eleanor Roosevelt once said that the purpose of life is to live it and to experience it to the fullest. Now, it's not wrong to experience life, of course, and yet... Would we say that's our ultimate purpose, just to experience the fullness of being alive? I don't think that's a very biblical idea. Emerson would say that we live, the purpose of life is to, to be useful to others, which again isn't a, a bad idea in terms of, of what we should do, but is that our ultimate purpose of life? What we see biblically is this. We were designed to love and worship God. Again, I'm, I'm going to get back and apply that to idolatry in just a second, but, but, but stay with me. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, we, we live, exist to glorify God. That's why he created us. That's why he designed us. We've been designed to love and worship him. That truth affects everything about our relationship with God and, and everything we do in life. It means that as God acts in our lives or, or through our lives, his purpose is to bring glory and honor to himself. Even his acts of mercy, we see in Psalm 106, verse 8, it's describing the rebellion of the Israelites. And verse 8 says, yet God saved them. Why? For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. You see, all of human existence is marching towards an unstoppable goal. And that goal is the complete and total exaltation of God's mighty name. The entire universe was created to glorify God, and that is what's going to happen. And there's nothing that anyone can do to to stop that movement toward that goal. What's going to happen is what's described in in Habakkuk 2.14, where Habakkuk writes, "The The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge and the recognition of God's glory will be worldwide. 
God's glory will be undeniable. That is why you and I came into being. It's why we exist. And that purpose will be achieved in the universe. Now, how does that relate to idolatry? Well, the problem with idolatry is that we were designed to love and worship God. And idolatry means that we've set our love and affection that is reserved only for God on on something else. We were designed to, to love and worship God, and He is owed that as our Creator. And what we have done when we practice idolatry is we have committed robbery against the Most High God. We have set love and affection that is owed to God and God alone on something less than God. It's robbery and it's foolishness. And it's something that each of us in this room are guilty of. I'm going to give you a, a test later on this morning. It helps us to define and describe our idols. But I don't think I really need to go into that depth just to get you to agree with this idea, right? That, that we are guilty of idolatry of putting our affection and love on things that are not God. We're guilty of idolatry. We know it, and God knows it. And so we need John's instruction here, God's instruction through what John is writing. So uh, turn there, and if you're not already there, there in 1 John chapter 5. And let me give you a little bit of the context, remind you what's happening here in 1 John as we come to the conclusion of this epistle. This entire letter has been written so that these people whom John loves can know that they're in relationship with God, and as they know know that they're in relationship with God, they can know that they're in relationship with one another. And John has given them these these tests by which they can know that they're in relationship with God. He's given them a truth test, this this doctrinal understanding that they can come to, to to know, okay, we believe these true things about who Jesus is and how our sin is dealt with. And as we come to this this truth test and we affirm the truth about who Jesus Christ is, we, we know that we're in relationship with God. He's given them an obedience test. If it's true that you believe the truth, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, there's been a heart transformation take place, and that heart transformation manifests itself in obedience. And if you don't see obedience in your heart, there's every possibility that you are not a child of God, not in relationship with him, not in relationship with one another. And so he gives an obedience test, and then he gives them this love test by which they can see whether or not they're in relationship with one another by how they love each other. Now, as John has been giving them these tests, he's been very Christ-focused, Christ-centered. He's made it clear that the, the truth is truth we believe about the person Jesus Christ. And he's made it clear that obedience is, is enabled by Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who, who deals with sin. And he's made it clear that the false teachers have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, and that wrong understanding of who Jesus is affects their eternal destiny. They don't rightly know God because they haven't rightly recognized who Jesus is. And so he comes here to the end of this epistle, and in verse 20, he has this, this once more, this, this Christ-exalting verse here, this Christ-exalting statement. He says, "'We know that the Son of God has come.'" 
has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we're in Him who is true. We're in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he has this statement that I believe is describing Jesus Christ. He says, He is the true God and He's eternal life. And then he ends this epistle, this whole letter, to these people he loves so much with these words. Again, saying, okay, here's who Jesus Christ is. He's eternal life. And remember we just said eternal life isn't just living a really, 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 really long time. Eternal life is having abundance of life. He says, okay, Jesus Christ is the one in whom we find eternal life, abundant life, and he's fully God. Then he says, little children, you just sense the love that he has for them. I think it's the sixth or seventh time he's called them his, his little kids. He's called them his beloved ones many, many times. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's saying, I love you so much, I don't want you to substitute Jesus Christ with anything else. Here's the main idea I want you to grasp from this verse this morning. This main idea is we look here at verse 12. You and I must diligently guard ourselves against anything that would keep us from fulfilling our divine purpose to know, love, and worship God. You and I must diligently guard ourselves against anything that would keep us from fulfilling our divine purpose, the reason for which we came into existence into this universe, to love and worship God and God alone. You say, Daniel, I don't have that much ink in my pen. Can you shorten it? Yes. Get rid of idols. Okay. That's it put very simply. Get rid of idols. That's John's instruction to you this morning, God's instruction through John. Now, here's how I want us to look at this instruction. I want us to ask ourselves three questions to help us get rid of idols this morning. Here's the first question What are idols? Okay, so John says, uh, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, John, we're going to get rid of idols. Now, what are they? Well, let me give you four truths about something false. Okay, idols are false. Let me give you four truths about that which is false. Number one, number one, idols are objects of worship. Okay, idols are objects of worship. Sometimes idols are these, these things that we physically create, physically fashion. So for example, in Leviticus 26.1, Moses, God speaking through Moses, says, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. And so he's describing here these, these literal objects. You, you don't make these things and, and then bow down and worship them. Don't do it. Idols are these objects of worship. But idols don't have to be these, these physical creations, right? Idols can also be things that we worship that are ideas, situations. We can worship idols. We can worship um, ideals. There's really nothing that can't somehow be fashioned into an object for us to worship. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God 
in Christ. So what is he describing there? He's not describing a person who's an idolater who's you know, fashioned this idol and is bowing down and worshiping it. He said, look, the person who's covetousness, who's covetous, is a person who's desiring something, sending their love and affection upon something that's not God. That person's an idolater. It's interesting. He's kind of linking it to, to sexual morality somewhat there as well, isn't he? He does the same thing in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so idols are objects of worship. They're things that we set our love and affection upon, a love and affection that's designed to go to God. We put it upon something else. It could be a physical object. It can be an emotion. It can be an idea. It can be a situation. It could be really almost anything. So idols are objects of worship. A second truth about something false Idols are created by us. We create idols. And we create idols, these things that aren't in line with the character of God. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, listen to this. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any likeness, the likeness of male or female. Then he goes further on into Deuteronomy in chapter 4, verse 23. He says, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So what Moses is saying there in Deuteronomy 4, he's saying, look, God has no form. And so whenever you fashion and create this object of worship, you're not worshiping God. You're, you're worshiping something that, that is less than God. In fact, this is, this is an interesting passage too. Let me take you to uh, Exodus. Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, in fact, if, uh, Exodus 32 verse 1. The people are waiting for Moses to come down out of the mountain. It says when the people saw that he was delayed, they come to Aaron. They say, look, Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then listen to what Aaron does, okay? Listen to what Aaron does. Aaron sees what's happened, and he builds this altar before this, and Aaron made a proclamation, said, tomorrow shall be a feast to, to Yahweh, to, to the Lord. You see what Aaron has done there? He says that this, this idol that's been created is, is Yahweh God. He doesn't give this idol a, a totally new name. He takes what the people have, have done and he's helped them do and incorporates it in, into the worship of Yahweh God. Do you see the danger here? Idols are created by us. They're, they're objects of worship, and they're, they're things that we've created. And they can be emotions. They can be physical objects. They can be ideals. They can be attitudes. But you know what else idols can be? You and I 
can come into the same room on a Sunday morning and we can sing the exact same song, we can pray at the exact same time, we can listen to the exact same sermon, we can both name the name of Jesus Christ, in in terms of saying the name Jesus Christ, and yet one of us can be practicing idolatry and, and the other not. You see, anytime you and I begin to take God and fashion him into our own desires, what we'd like him to look like, we've begun to practice idolatry. Idols are things which we create. And so whenever we take God and we say, you know what, I think God, and then we fill in the blank with something that Scripture doesn't say, we've begun the pathway towards idolatry. Idols are created by us. They're these objects of worship that we, that we, that we fashion for ourselves to worship and in fact, it's, it's interesting, uh, Stephen in Acts 7.41, as he describes what, what happens here, he says, they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Idols are these objects we worship and we delight in and we rejoice in and we're the ones who created them. It's pathetic, right? Now here's where it gets even more pathetic. Here's the third truth about that which is false. Idols are are powerless. They're powerless. Isaiah 44 is a, is a great passage to describe the futility of idols. In Isaiah 44, first of all, Isaiah begins to talk about who God is and, and, and his attributes and his character and, and his power. In verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah 44, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so God, as he describes himself, says, look, I'm all powerful. I have the ability to declare the future and not only just declare what I think might happen, but to absolutely bring it to pass. And you're my witnesses. You can, you can verify to the truth of this. And then he contrasts that with idols. It's an incredibly pathetic picture that's described here in Isaiah 44. Verse 9, it says, All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. Verse 12, it says, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. And then verse 13 talks about the carpenter. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and with a, marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. And then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it, takes part of a tree and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat and he roasts and is satisfied. Also, the other half he takes and makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, says Isaiah. They don't discern 
For he has shut their eyes they cannot see, and their hearts they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Look, half of this I burn in the fire, and with the other half shall I make an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? It's pathetic. It's pathetic. Idols are powerless. You know, here's the deal, though. The idols that we fashion and create for ourselves and that become our objects of worship are also pathetic. You see, this, this guy cuts down this tree and makes a meal, warms himself with half of the tree, and then with the other half, he creates an idol and falls down and worships it. And God is saying, look, this, this idol, this block of wood, is never going to be able to give you what you want. The, the people of Israel delight and, and rejoice in the work of their own hands, and it's pathetic because the work of their hands is never going to be able to do anything. Now here's the deal. The idols that you and I fashion for ourselves are equally worthless. They do not have the ability to grant us what we foolishly believe that they will. And it's our folly that causes us to continue to pursue our idols and think, well, maybe this time. Yeah, the the idol last time didn't give me the joy that only God can provide me, but I'm pretty sure this time it might work out. One of my idols, for instance, is accomplishment, like getting things done. And my heart worships that. I want to check off everything at the end of the day. And I believe that, that next time, next time I get to the end of the day and I, I check off that last little box and say, yea, verily, thusly have I accomplished all that I wanted to accomplish today, I will feel the fullness of joy at that moment, and even though it's never worked in the past. This time it will. And surely the reason that I'm not feeling contentment and joy now is because I'm not worshiping this, this idol as fully as I need to. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. These idols can't bring joy, and yet we try to rejoice in them. And here's the fourth truth about that which is false. Idols are what we worship instead of God. Okay? So they're the objects of worship. You think, well, okay, idols are objects of worship, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm worshiping God. I'm also worshiping these idols. No, no, no. Here, here's, the, here's the deal. Idols are that which we worship instead of God. We can't worship both. Paul, as he's talking to the people in Thessalonica, he says, look, the cool thing, the awesome thing about your testimony was people told us how you had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The person who's going to worship rightly is a person who turns from idols and turns to worship God. The thing about idolatry is idolatry is that which we set our affections and our joys upon that is not God. We worship instead of God. One commentator said, anything which occupies the place due to God is an idol. Worship of an idol is what we do to get what only God can provide. We value something wrongly and we give it worth that is only due to God. Whenever I was... uh, in college, the last, right before I began the last semester. I'm going to talk about that which you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. I'm going to talk a little about money here. I apologize. But I was, it was December of, of uh, 1998. I was getting ready in January of 1999 to, to uh, ask this, this young lady to, to marry me, uh, Whitney. And, and uh, she had told me what type of ring was her dream ring. And 
she, she knew the reality. She knew she was uh, with a, a college guy, and the odds of getting this ring were, it was just kind of a, she didn't even know for sure a lot of things. Anyway, um, <laughs> she married me. You know. That's why you marry young boys. Uh, trick them when, well, anyway. Um, so, so I knew I couldn't afford this, this ring that she wanted. She told me this, this, you know, just kind of idle, you know, talk. This would be a, a really cool ring. And, so I, I, I did what every romantic young uh, person did back in the late 90s. This is before the, you know, I was able to access eBay and stuff like that. I, I looked in these, these things called classified ads in a thing called a newspaper. And I, I found this advertisement for a ring that was exactly what she said she wanted for $800. Okay, I thought, wow, that looks like a great deal. I called this person and... and and, and she said, yes, I have this ring, and I spent, it was worth over $3,000 or something like that, and, and uh, I have the receipt for it, but I don't want it anymore. I didn't ask a lot of questions about that. And uh, I said, well, where can I, where can I meet you? She said, well, here, we'll meet in this, this parking lot. So I did one of the most financially risky things I, I have ever done in my entire life. If you know me, this is not uh, indicative of how I normally handle money. But I, I took, uh, I scrounged together, I had $800, eight $100 bills, and I met this, this stranger that I'd never met before in a parking lot, and I handed her eight $100 bills, and she handed me a ring that I had no idea whether it was, it looked real, uh, and she gave me a receipt, and I said, well, I, you know, I hope that goes to this ring. And what did I do? I immediately went to a jeweler. I said, please tell me that I haven't just, you know, given away $800. And he looked at that ring, and he got his little device. And I tell you, I've never been so relieved in my life as when that little light flash. He said, yes, this is the genuine deal. You got a good deal. I just heard someone excel a, a sigh. I feel the same way. I'm still happy about it too. Now, now here's the deal though. Here's the deal, right? What do you and I do? In idolatry. We take what we know is a garbage ring. We take our life savings. We try to buy it. It's stupid. It's foolishness. It's the utter definition of folly. We take that which we know has no value, something we know is powerless, something we know we've created ourselves, and we say, this is what is of infinite worth, and I'm going to invest in it. I'm going to to give it my, my time and my love and my affection, and it's absolute folly. Idols are objects of worship that we worship instead of God. It makes no sense, and yet we do it anyway. Here's a second question. How do we know that we're worshiping idols? Well, if idols are replacements for our love and worship, there's love and worship that's due God, this passion that's due God, and idols are, are betrayed by what we're passionate about. You see, when you're passionate about something, what do you do? You pursue it. And as you pursue that which you're passionate about, what happens? There's, there's fruit, there's results from that. So what can we tell? We can tell when we're passionate about idols by the fruit that produces Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, the works of the flesh are evident. You can tell sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is that? As we pursue the deeds of the flesh, as we worship the flesh, as we worship the world and the things of the world, the fruit's going to manifest itself. James says the same thing in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, those things your heart desires. And then he says, you adulterous people, and adultery in Scripture is, is so closely connected to idolatry, just as a, a, adultery is this, this break of covenant relationship between a husband and wife, idolatry is, is this break of relationship between us and God as we pursue other gods. You adulterous people, you idolaters, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As we are passionate about something, we pursue it. And as we pursue that which is idolatrous, the fruit evidences that. It produces certain fruit. If you have a, a pen and a paper, I want you to take that out for a second if you, want, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm going to give you an, an idle test. If you're typing on a smart device, just kind of hit enter a couple times. Here's a, here's a little test if, if you want to know whether or not you're struggling with idolatry. First of all, I'll answer this question. Have I worried about something this week? Have I worried about something this, this past week? What is it, if, if so? Write, write it down. What is it that, that's caused you worry this week? Maybe there's been something that's, that's kept you up at night. There's a financial situation. Maybe write down money. I, I, you've just been so worried about, about your financial situation this week. How are you going to retire? Or maybe you're a young person and you're thinking about, me, how am I going to get through school? Or there's some sort of life event that's coming up and you're just struggling with it, you're worried about it, there's a relationship that you are worried about and you just can't stop thinking about it, it keeps you up at night, it's the first thing you think of in the morning. Are you worried about something this morning? Write, write down what, it's, what you're worried about. How about this question? Same test. And there's no pass, fail, it's just fail. Um, <laughs> have you been angry about something this week? Has something really just angered you this week? What, what is it? What, what made you angry this week? Maybe you're at work and a coworker. the coworker promised they would meet this deadline and they didn't. And as you think about your inco- their incompetence, even this morning, your blood just kind of boils a little bit as you think about just that, that incompetence or that, that breach of relationship. You think about there's a time this week with your kids, you just lost your cool. Maybe you didn't yell at them, but you were thinking about it and just, oh, it just kind of burns you up even, even now thinking about it or or you're kind of shamed as you think about what happened earlier. Maybe related to that, there's a, there's a conflict. There's a conflict that you're in right now. And it's like James says, you know, what's the source of this? Well, it's, it's your passions. You want something and you're not, and you're not getting it. What is it that you want in this relationship that's causing a conflict? Maybe it's their respect. You're not getting the respect that you think that they owe you. What is it this morning that maybe you're, maybe you're, um, maybe you're just envious of? Are you envious this morning? What are you envious of? Maybe there's, there's a friend you have, and this friend, she just has it all together. And as you think about how she has it all together, there's just this, this envy as you think about it. You've just identified your idols, right? Those are the things that your heart is set upon. You're worshiping those things 
and they're producing the fruit that they're inevitably going to produce. As your heart wants things that aren't God. You want something, you want your idol, and when you don't get it, you get angry. A great test for you when you find yourself getting upset about something or worrying. Say, okay, what is it that I'm worried about? And, and what is it in my heart that that's, that, that's an idol? Maybe, it's, maybe you notice you get angry whenever your kids are, are being argumentative. And, and you realize, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm caring about is this idol of, of, of peace. I want peace in my home. I'm not getting it. And so I'm angry and my idol is peace. It's a great test to give yourself as you think about your idols. Well, here's the third question. Say, okay, I, I know what my idols are. At least I'm going to begin to kind of understand what they are. But how do I keep myself from idols? How do we keep ourselves from idols? Here's, here's what we do. First of all, we get rid of idols passionately. This cannot be a struggle you engage in half-heartedly. John gives us this instruction here. It's his last words to these, these people he loves so dearly. The last thing he says is, as he closes his letter, hey, guys, this is a big deal. If we're going to be in fellowship with God, we can't be idolaters. You have to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and love him and set your, your soul and your affections upon him. So keep yourselves from idols. Bye. The last words he has. Keep yourselves from idols. This has to be a passion that we have. In fact, it's not enough to say, I don't, want to be, I don't want to love my idols anymore. I need to stop doing that. Our passion for idols has to be replaced with a passion for someone else. You're leaving these worthless idols and you're saying, okay, I'm turning from these and I'm, I'm turning to someone of worth. And as we think, first of all, we think about, okay, what am I, what am I leaving? I'm leaving that which is, is worthless and dangerous to my soul. And so I have a, first of all, I have this passion to leave this garbage because I, I recognize where it leads to. Imagine, I would tell you that if, as you leave this morning, there's going to be an usher with a plate full of poisonous cookies, and please help yourself. Well, you probably wouldn't ask me, well, are they chocolate chip? May I nibble at them? May I lick them? Is it bad to smell them? You'd say, poisonous cookies, right, got it, staying away. First of all, as we think about turning from idols and, and getting passion, we say, man, these idols are dangerous dudes. I don't want anything to do with them. One of the greatest uh, counseling uh, tips that someone gave me as I was uh, talking to him was uh, Joel Smith from Bethany Baptist Church it encouraged me to, to do this with, with someone I was talking to. He said, have them write out all the ways that this, the sin that they're engaged in has affected those people around them. And it was just pages after pages of the, the fruit of, of the sin, this idol in their lives. And it was just sobering for them and for me as we thought about how, how terrible this idol had been in their lives. It had not brought joy, but only disaster upon them and upon everyone. So we're passionate about what we're leaving. Recognize, man, this is dangerous. This is not good for my soul. And then we get passionate about the one to whom we're turning. Revelation, who is the one to whom we're turning? Revelation, Jesus says, look, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. He says at the end of Revelation, I'm the one who's coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Colossians tells us that we're turning to the one to whom the entire universe exists for and, and through, and in him all things hold together. That's the one that we're turning to. If we're going to get rid of idols, first of all, we have to get passionate. 
We have to say, I'm getting rid of idols passionately. I recognize the danger to idols, and I recognize the beauty and the matchless, unsurpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we get rid of idols constantly. We get rid of idols constantly. John's instruction here isn't, hey, uh, little children, keep yourselves from idols, and after you've done that, you're good. Just get rid of those idols, get rid of a couple, and you're good. No. Idols are that which we constantly have to battle against. You find yourself worshiping this idol of ease, and, and so you say, okay, God, this is this idol of ease, and so I I'm turning to you. Please, please change my heart here. In fact, we read in James chapter 4, you go on and read, and you say that the person who's going to get rid of idols humbles themselves. They, they draw near to God. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so this, this person who's getting rid of idols constantly says, okay, I, my heart is not right. I recognize that I worship this idol of ease. God, I humble myself, and I want you instead of ease. And so we, we, we do that, and then the next day, there's this financial situation that arises. And as we think about the finances, our, our hearts get worried again. We say, man, I'm worshiping this idol of, of money, and money's taken. Our hearts, as John Calvin said, are these idol-making forges, this, this idol-making factory. We're constantly producing idols. How do you get rid of idols? You get rid of idols constantly. It is a lifelong battle. Here's the third thing. We get rid of idols ruthlessly. Getting rid of idols hurts. It hurts you to your core because your heart has been so passionately set upon them. If getting rid of idols is some sort of thing that you can casually do very flippantly that that hurts not at all, no real pain, you haven't really identified your idols, right? This is how Jesus describes it. Jesus describes this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, look, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says this. This is, the, this is the ruthless part. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Here's what we say as we, as we identify the idols in our life. We say, I am ready to do whatever it takes, whatever ruthless action it takes to get rid of this thing that is keeping me from worshiping and loving God. And it doesn't matter what it is, I'm willing to get rid of it in order to love and worship God and God alone. Why does God make us do that? You see, John isn't saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols because I really want you to have a miserable existence. You guys whine and complain like little kids. Why don't you just keep yourselves from idols and have a miserable life? He says, I love you. And I know, I know that the only way you're going to experience the the fullness of joy and delight is to, to worship God and God alone. And so, little children, because I love you, keep yourselves from idols. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of light. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's why God, in his great love for us, puts these things in our life that we have to reject. 
because it is only by rejecting those things that we're going to begin to grasp his utter and complete value. And even then, not perfectly, right? Little children, love the Lord Jesus Christ. In him is eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you give us the ability to keep ourselves from idols, not in our own strength, but according to your grace and love. Help us to avail ourselves of that this morning. As we're about to sing, help us to, to sing these, these words that exalt you and to, to believe them in our hearts. And these, these words would reflect the reality of what we believe about you and your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.